And I'm going to start this recording. And we can start in 1 Corinthians 10. That's the text I'm going to begin with as we continue what we started last week about God's presence and the house of the Lord. And that's really where my main burden was and is. I felt like the Lord stirred my heart to honor His presence and give more emphasis and attention to His abiding presence as that which marks us out as His people. And something that's just the sheer glorious gift of grace. Something that should astound us every single day that we would have God's presence living inside our physical bodies and living inside the body of His people. That by itself is just something for us to honor and enjoy. And something that I believe he's calling us to put more emphasis on. He was reminding me of just our own revival heritage and just the, the charismatic and Pentecostal movement in the larger history to which we belong that should give us reason to say, look, we, we have something that is precious. And that is the presence of the Lord. And that the more we honor his presence and emphasize and focus on it, the more of him we'll see breaking through in our lives. Well, related to that, God uh, helps us to see that if we want to experience his abiding presence, right, not just visitation, but habitation, we should partner with him to build his house because the address of his presence is his house. So it's under burden talking about God's presence that we're discussing the building of God's house. And then speaking specifically, second, secondly in our points here, about his presence in particular, the presence of the Spirit. So that's where I'm coming from. Now, having said that, I want to make an announcement really quickly. Um, Randy Serson was communicating with me this week with a burden and with some urgency about how we should, as a work... And as churches, uh, really pray about and discuss together the church's role in general and our role in terms of engaging our culture, especially during such a controversial, politically transitional season. So the question is, what's our role? How should we be engaging? You know, the point is not who should we vote for or not vote for regarding this discussion. But that sort of decision should flow out of something more important going on inside of us. So that's the nature of the discussion. Well, Nate, uh, Randy brought this up, but I was already thinking, man, I should at least say something um, explicitly and publicly about that, uh, this. So that was already in my mind, and Randy brought this up. So what we're going to do is either n next Sunday or the Sunday following, depending on how much of this I get through today, right? We're going to have a talk about that. So I would just like for you to pray about it. And we'll know at the end of today or during the week if we're going to do it next Sunday or the Sunday after. And the way we're going to approach it is just, first of all, where should our spirit be in terms of our relationship to the world around us, in terms of our freedom, in terms of our loyalty to King Jesus above everything else? So our spirit, number one. Number two, what are our priorities as far as function? And then number three, out of that, how should we engage our culture? So that's, that's roughly the topics we'll be talking about. Uh, I'll start by giving a simple presentation, and then we'll talk about it, hopefully prophetically, having prayed about it in the meantime. So get ready for that. 
And the reason why I bring that up here is because I, I believe it relates to our building of God's house. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up with the train of his robe filling his temple. But that occurred in the year that King Uzziah died, when there was a massive a political transition in Israel and in the world. It was controversial and it would cause insecurity in the hearts of God's people. Especially someone like Isaiah who was a prophet. Now I say especially. I'm sure his anchoring in the Lord helped him not to be insecure. But still, as a representative of his people, he saw the Lord as king. When he saw that another king that brought such blessing, but then such defilement, to the house of the Lord, Isaiah being a witness of that, he needed to be a witness of the Lord's exaltation as king over his own people and over all the affairs of the nations. So Isaiah needed that revelation. But Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in terms of God's house on the earth because he was transcendent, high and lifted up. If lofty isn't lofty enough, Isaiah saw him raised even higher. (laughs) But simultaneously, the train of his robe filled the temple. So you get this picture of the Lord intimately present and connected to his house while simultaneously transcended over all creation, all angels, all nations, all the troubles of Israel, all the defilement of the politicians or the goodness of them or the combination. I mean, the Lord was Lord over it all. And Isaiah had a specific commission in the midst of it. And he was sent, having seen the Lord exalted. My point is, the loftiness and exaltation of the Lord was revealed in terms of his house and his presence in his house. So during this, uh, you know, a, a season of political transition and controversy, it is more important than ever that we agree with God and his wisdom and partner with him to build his house in particular. No matter what other cultural engagement that we embrace, and, it, and we should, and it's important, the, the main thing we're given to do is build his house his way. Because even Isaiah saw that revelation of the Lord in his temple, high and lifted up, right in the midst of very culturally relevant issues. It's the most relevant thing we can do, but we have to do it God's way, and we have to actually do it. And we'll find ourselves expressing his lordship right in the midst of these situations. One other thing about that, and then we'll move on to some of the more practical aspects of building God's house. I believe prophetically, as simple as this is, I believe it's got prophetic truth, meaning I believe the Spirit's saying it. God is humbling America. And God is humbling the American church. That's what's happening. I don't... I don't um, uh, claim that that means judgment, though I do believe we're under chastisement. I don't uh, claim that that means destruction. I'm not saying that, but I am saying we're being humbled. We're being exposed and we're being humbled. And we should agree with God about that if you judge this word and find it to be true. To me, there's nothing more humbling than building God's house. Because God's house consists of family, not attending a church. Not only does family, family require humiliation and, and humble uh, demeanor, 
but it, it um, yeah, okay, it requires it, but it also means locating pride that doesn't look so prideful and putting it away. You know, it's one thing for me to be a leader in God's house and to be all humble and say, oh, you know, it's not about the money. I just want to serve you. And, and amen, that may be all true. But for me to forsake my agenda in building a church and to do it a certain way that is more people emphatic and releasing people and building family, that's a sign of humility to the Lord. On the other hand, when we do church our own way, we may have a humble demeanor, but really it's human arrogance. To just The way we do church is a greater barometer of humility versus arrogance than how do you relate to people? Are you a humble servant? Because oftentimes when we seek to build God's house our way, it's our arrogance saying, we have a better way. Your way isn't convenient for us. To me, that's selfish. So it's one thing for me to be all humble in my presentation, but am I building God's house? Because that requires me to put myself away and serve other people. And same with you. I'm telling you, God's humbling his church. And you can only do so much of God's house our way before God says something and says, look, I'm I'm trying to humble you. Let me do it gently and move you in the right direction. So let's build God's house as our response to his humbling us. Amen. I mean, can you build a natural family without humility? Can you do that? Who are we to say the way a family should be designed? Two men, two women. I believe this about my kids. I believe that about I'm just going to, you know, we're going to raise them this or that way. Really, what's God's wisdom about raising children? What's God's wisdom about two parents? Who they should be? What's God's wisdom? We're arrogant when we say, oh, we're just going to redefine that and do it our way. We're humble when we say, when we say Father, what's your wisdom? How do I build your family? Well, it's the same thing in his house. Maybe we should be extricating, extracting out the, uh, or getting rid of any spirit of uh, perversion of the way a spiritual family we should be. I think there's a key here. I don't think many people see it. And I don't mean that exclusively. I just, uh, it's something to pray about. But building God's house His way is one of the greatest forms of humble service, uh, service we can offer the Lord. And everything else is just human selfishness. That might sound pretty all-encompassing, but I mean it too, so I guess we're okay. Well, we're going to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because where we left off last time was we established the point that I just recapped. And then we started to talk about the table of the Lord as a unifying and edifying symbol to build God's house. And so I want to present that to you more fully today and talk about it and and explain it uh, and, and apply it. When I'm talking about the table of the Lord, I'm talking literally about gathering for the Lord's Supper, but also symbolically about what the Lord's Supper represents and what it represents should be at the center of our community even when we're not eating together. Okay, my point is not that we just eat together. I mean, we go through fastings and not all of our meetings are table fellowship. 
so it's not just literal. It's both literal and symbolic, but it should be the center. It's the gift of God to his church. It's the expression of the new covenant. It's, it's the, when, when the spirit of God is the practical centerpiece of our fellowship, that's the table of the Lord. So I want you to hold in your mind's eye a picture of a table at the center of a people. That's the picture of the church when we're having fellowship at the same table. The picture of a church is not what the physical arrangement we're in right now. Okay, There's nothing wrong with doing this or I wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because Bob never does anything wrong. No, I mean, I believe this is okay to do. But this is an exceptional thing we're doing. In a, in a teaching gathering for the sake of building God's tables in little fellowships that I'd like to see spread through our city. So it's for the sake of this. There's nothing wrong with gathering in a conference physical gathering. I, I like doing that. I love going to conferences. I think we should be doing it. But those things should be the icing on the cake, not the cake. Right? Cake, a good food metaphor. Right? The main symbol... Okay, the physical symbol of God's church is, a, is table fellowship, not conference setting. Even the physical structure of a conference, where you kind of have the main people up here and then the audience back there, that sends a signal that's contrary to God's wisdom in terms of building his family. Now, it's not wrong to do that, but on occasion, if it's the rule rather than, than the exception, it's sending a vibe that contradicts the picture of a table where everyone gathers equally and everyone has equal value, equal honor. Actually, some have greater honor, but we'll get to that later. It's based on equal honor and equal contribution, but also equal voluntary work. Not the hired staff. The people do the work. So the table represents all of that. That's why it should be centered. But physically, it's difficult to picture that. Even when we have home groups, if it's still tethered to the mothership, we have the wrong picture. And physically, in our minds, we're walking something out differently than God's wisdom. We need a revolution. We need to restore the table of the Lord. It's what Jesus established. He says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It's not mass in the liturgical church. It doesn't have those explicit or implied magical kinds of uh, you know, elements to it. But neither is it just something you add on to a, an already established service. It's the, fellowships, the fellowship of the saints in mutual love and honor and the exercising of the gifts and then the outreach from the very same platform and launching pad, the table of the Lord. So 1 Corinthians 10 gives us this, both literally and symbolically. We understand the context being some of the Corinthian believers who were so free to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And Paul said, fine, do it, but don't cause your brother to stumble. That's chapter 8. And then his own example of love with freedom in chapter 9, by itself, enough to um, give us a lot to talk about, but we're not going there. But then in chapter 10, Paul says, okay, you cats who are so free to eat the meat that was sacrificed to idols, fine, you're free, but don't you know that when you go there in those restaurants attached to idols, temples, that you're not just going there to eat meat. You and I both know you're going to engage in some of the activity that's there. 
It's not just about eating meat and being free theologically. You're getting involved in the worship of that God by participating in the table fellowship. That's the image here. And so Paul keeps the image and he says you can't eat at the table of demons and the table of the Lord at the same time. It's a powerful image. If we don't even have table fellowship as a symbol of family, supernatural bonded family, then we can't even hardly relate to this. We're like, oh, okay, the Corinthians, we're going to have examples and blah, blah, blah. We don't even apply it. So here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Thank you, Cole. Thank you. <laughs> I can't just. It's hard to screen. There's that the perfect pitch that it's just. It's. I guess it's not what you call white noise. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Okay, well, I drew attention to it. Wasn't that smart? Okay, I know. I should have drawn attention. Okay, verse 15. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of the Messiah? Okay, that's powerful. The the cup that we share is a sharing in the blood of the Messiah. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of the Messiah? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. (laughs) Seriously? That's your reason that we're one body? Because there's one loaf of bread? That's a powerful image. If we're breaking bread off the same loaf, that means we're one body. Okay, it's not the magic of the bread. It's what the bread represents. If we're at the same table eating the same meal, that's saying something to you, Corinthians. You're one body. There's a message just in the meal. You all have heard me say, or most of you have heard me talk about the importance of table fellowship in the ancient world and really in much of the world today. It's not as important in our culture, so we don't view it as the powerful social symbol that it it was and is. But who you're at table fellowship with is who you're associating in deep fellowship with. You read that in the Bible in different stories as far back as Joseph in Egypt. The uh, The Egyptians would never eat with Hebrews. So Joseph, even though he was second in command, could not eat with Egyptians. But then he couldn't eat with his family because they were of a different status than him. So they all had, quote, table fellowship. But when they did, the Egyptians were in one room. Joseph was by himself or with his entourage or whatever. And then the rest of uh, Jacob's family was in a different room. I mean, they were all getting along, but they couldn't have table fellowship together because they were of different ethnic groups and statuses. You just don't do that, right? That's why Jesus says, you all, my people come to the same table. That was very revolutionary. The Corinthians were not eating together and they were all part of the same church because some were of a higher status than others and they may have loved the others, but you can't eat at the same table. You'll lose your reputation in the city. So that's very important. So since there is one bread, we who are many are one body because we all partake of one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not all those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. What I'm saying is that the Gentiles, or that which the Gentiles sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons and not to God, and I don't want you to become sharers in demons. 
All right, I don't believe the God, uh, the, the statue is a real God that exists. Amen, your theology is right, he's telling the Corinthians. But guess what? There are demonic spirits behind that cult. So if you go to that temple in the name of freedom to eat steak, you're actually, because you're eating with them, you're participating with the demonic. And Paul's attitude as an apostle is like, I don't care about whether you agree with me or not. If you're going as a part of that group to share that fellowship supper, Aphrodite may not be real. Apollo may not be real. But the demons behind that cult are real. And you're having spirit-to-spirit fellowship with them. You can't do that. You're Yahweh's covenant people. So negatively we see the contrast. But what does that mean positively for what does happen in a family setting? It's like we're deeply connected as one with the Lord and with one another. Verse 21, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. This is such a powerful image. We have some modern grace preachers and even others who talk about all the things we're free to do that the Pharisaical evangelicals say you're not allowed to do because we're not all about the rules. Okay, we're not all about rules. We're not living holy ethical lives because we have to earn salvation or because God has put this burden on us. But what about the innocence of maintaining covenant? Maybe we should be watchful about our ethical lives because some of the things we do, whether we want to admit it or not, have nothing to do with obeying rules or not obeying rules. It has to do with engaging in demonic covenant versus maintaining the pure covenant that we have with God and with one another. Maybe that's a good way to view things. It's not just about rules or not rules. Either way, it's not just theology. Life is about covenant relationships. So we may not want to live ethically just to uh, obey some rules, but we should be living ethically because it has to do with covenant relationship. Something we don't want to talk about, especially some of the more abusive grace preachers, because they often don't want to take responsibility for practical ethical life. They just want to theologize and set people free rather than put actual wholesome responsibility on us. There are responsibilities that have to do with our our connection to God and connection to one another. So Paul's saying, you know, verse 21, the language is stronger than cannot. It's you're not able to drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You're not able to partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Oh, Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than the Lord? You think you could just do this? Just because you're free to eat meat? You think you could just go engage these different tables and be at the table of the Lord? You can do whatever you want because you're so free. You can just engage all these different tables and the table of the Lord. Oh, you can do it because you're free. Really? Really? Paul's peeling it back. Really? Can you do that? Can you keep that up? The disparity of different covenants before it breaks down? your minds and your immune systems, if not in a few days, a few years, maybe even several decades, you think you're stronger than the Lord? That you can just have covenant relationship with all these different beings and Him? It's a powerful metaphor. Let's establish the table of the Lord as a symbol of covenant love and responsibility. 
So a few points now in order. Okay, I would like for us to have the table of the Lord as a literal practice and as a mental symbol. I want us to picture it. Now, before you picture too much, let's picture a round table. You can decorate it however you want. That's completely up to you. I'm not trying to tell you what to think. But I'm requesting that you make it round. Like the Knights of the Round Table. You know, King Arthur had the controversy, at least as the legend goes, that the different knights he took counsel with were arguing about who was going to be higher or lower because, again, a a very um, status-conscious society is not going to want to come on a council and be, yeah, but I'm understood that I'm lesser than this one. I don't want that. So King Arthur was like, well, let's make a round table. There's no head of the table. Yes, sir. Am I I quoting an urban legend? No. Who invented it? Circumference. What? Circumference. (laughs) Circumference. (laughs) There's no way to avoid that joke. You had to. Circumference. That is awesome. Thank you for that. I'm telling see? Confirmation. (laughs) If there's if it's a circumference, there's no head of the table. There's no person saying I'm above you. But rather, it's equal. That's awesome. It's equal. All right, so the table of the Lord represents three things. Number one, the table of the Lord represents the ultimate fulfillment of the gospel itself. Here's what I mean by that. The three-part gospel, as we've said before, teaches us that, first of all, we're justified by faith. Our sins are atoned for. We're forgiven. We're in the covenant. Number two, as individuals, we're recreated, which is neat to be a new species of human by the Holy Spirit, to have victory over sin. But then in part three, the new creation is not just for the individual. It's the creation of a new people, a whole new kind of community. That's the ultimate goal of the gospel. When on a practical level, nations and various statuses are brought together in one love and one honor with the Lord as the center. That sends the most powerful gospel message to the rest of the world because it's the culmination of the gospel itself. We tend to think of the culmination of the gospel as our individual forgiveness or if we're into a more modern prophetic movement, um, the transformation of our souls into a new kind of person that could heal the sick on the streets, which is absolutely true. But, like, for that, that's the ideal. You know, maybe a previous generation would emphasize holiness as the ultimate expression, which I don't argue. But then others would then say, nah, holiness isn't so great. I mean, we actually think this way. Nah, holiness isn't that big of a deal. It's healing the sick on the street. I've heard a preacher say that. Nah, righteousness isn't the thing. It's not just ethics. It's, it's can you, do you have the power of God in your life? That's what righteousness means. So then that became the new culmination. Not just living righteously, but we can even put that away. Can you heal? And I agree with the idea, of course, the, the glory of healing and, and, of, and holiness. But in the gospel, it's all those things expressed in terms of family. That's the greatest act of creation. That requires more of the Spirit than anything else. It's easier to come to a place of personal faith to heal the sick than it is to be in... God-intended kinds of relationships. That takes more faith. Serious. 
It really does. You got to believe the Lord to develop God's kind of community. And this isn't to diminish the healing, which is part of my message today or next week. How important that is. The expressions of spiritual power, the power of the Spirit, evangelism, holiness. It's all part of it. So, the table represents the ultimate fulfillment of the gospel. In Galatians chapter 2, you'll remember that in Antioch, Paul and Peter were having fellowship with Jews and Gentiles. But when certain Jewish brothers came from Jerusalem to Antioch, Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles. And he held himself, Paul says, he held himself aloof. So Paul's response to Peter was to rebuke him publicly. Not because he was teaching error, but because he refused to eat with Gentiles when certain Jews were around. Think about this. Peter stopped eating with Gentiles because of the presence of certain Jews. And Paul rebuked him publicly. Not just because that wasn't very socially graceful, but because it contradicted the gospel. That's what he said. He said, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned and launched into a rebuke that didn't even mention so much the, the, the failure of, of social grace, but it was the, the misrepresentation of the gospel that Paul rebuked Peter for. Because the table fellowship internationally and melting together the different statuses, that's gospel. It's not just friendship, it's gospel. So if an apostle won't eat with Gentiles, <coughs> Paul's saying, that's anti-gospel, man. I can't afford you to do this. And I can correct you in private. That can't happen. I'm a gospel preacher. I can't afford to have this false witness in front of people. I'm not talking about Peter as a person was a false witness. His behavior was a false witness. Man, that's, that's very powerful. And here, we often won't even set out the table of the Lord. Symbolically or literally. Which means we're misrepresenting the gospel. To us, the gospel is about personal salvation or personal piety or personal power, but not, not something communal. We have to be gospel people. It's not about doing house church. It's about being gospel people. So picture a round table. Decorate it however you want. You know, you may have family members who really know how to make beautiful wood figures and you can have a, you know, a carved map of the nations on it or something awesome. I mean, picture whatever you want, but make sure it's a table, make sure it's round and make sure it's, it's the central piece of the family that you envision. Well, let's see. Do I even have time? Let's at least look at a little bit of Luke chapter 14. Let's turn to Luke 14. Maybe we can um, just read a little bit of this passage and you can go back and look at it another time for more details. Table fellowship was a powerful metaphor for God's kingdom, especially in Luke's Gospel and then Acts. So for Luke, it wasn't just the Lord's Supper. It was the whole concept of, of an association around the table that became a symbol of God's kingdom now and in the age to come. And this is one passage of many, but it's, it's really uh, in, it's, um, condensed and poignant here in Luke 14. 
where the, the table becomes a symbol of God's kingdom. So in verse 7, okay, Luke 14, 7. He began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. You see, the table becomes a symbol of this parable. And they were at a, um, they were at a banquet. So the banquet is a kingdom symbol. symbol. He says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, and the one who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man, and in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. So, you, so social honor was very important in this culture, in the Mediterranean world. Jew and Greek, whatever. The whole Mediterranean world was all about honor. You, you were Life had to do with honor in front of other people. So Jesus is saying, well, don't, don't follow that in the kingdom. If you're at a wedding feast, don't think I'm going to go take the place of honor because I know the host and I'm a good friend. You never know he may have invited someone who's socially more important than you in the city and you'll have to be removed from the place you chose and that will be a shame to you in front of everyone, which would be devastating. So Jesus says, instead, pick the last place. So you can only go up. He says, go and recline at the last place in verse 10. So that when the one who invited you comes up, he may say to you, friend, come up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Did you know that that saying was originally told at a banquet? The place of honor. Jesus says, it's all about the table. When you come, take the last place. You can't go anywhere but up. Because if you can't go anywhere than, than up, then that, that's right where God wants you. you. You go low to begin with, let God raise you up. Don't raise yourself up. And where does he tell all this? At the table. The table is the place of humility. And it's the place where God will honor you. He gives another parable. He went on to say to the one who had invited him, hey, when you have a, when you have a luncheon or a dinner... He was all about banquets. <laughs> Life would always come back to the table. For us, life comes back to what? It comes back to what's our common places? Kind of life comes back to, for much of the world, it comes back to the blue glow of the television at night. Or it goes to the bar and there's little hints of communion there, fellowship. It all comes back to you know, what partying over the weekend or something whatever their social groups do. That's why the Jews have these traditions weekly and then seasonally where life comes back to these certain feasts. You know, Sukkot, Passover, the Sabbath, it all comes down to that. It's kind of like what we're going for. For believers, it comes back to the table. It's our fellowship both within and as a platform to draw from without. So he says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors which is the only thing they ever did. Socially, that's all you could do. That was the game. He says, otherwise, they may also invite you in return. What's wrong with that? Well, that's your only payment back. That's all you get. You get the return from them. You're just going back and forth like hitting a tennis ball. But there's no eternal value. He says, instead, in verse 13, when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. These are the outcasts of society. They're beyond the margins. You don't invite them to your table. Jesus says, actually, where I rule, they're the ones you invite at the table. 
So here you have table fellowship, not just as a unifying and edifying factor for the community, but as an outreach tool. He says, you'll be blessed since they don't have any means to repay you because you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And this isn't even to speak of, for instance, Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, when Jesus broke bread and was recognized. It all came down to table fellowship. It's a powerful metaphor for the kingdom. The table represents uh, the value of every member, like the knights of the round table. And in 1 Corinthians 12, when you read about the gifts and the body, we isolate 1 Corinthians 12, thinking it's the Pentecostal passage about the gifts. If you take it in context, the various gifts and the various members were all at the Lord's Supper. It wasn't just coming out of the blue. We, we read 1 Corinthians 12 often out of context and we just tell people about using the gifts in a church service or on the street, both of which are great. But the context was the Lord's Supper coming off of chapter 11. So again, we have to, Paul's mental picture in 1 Corinthians 12 when he talks about the gifts, the table of the Lord. It was in the context of fellowship that they shared the gifts. And again, that's not just literal. It's also symbolic. It's the idea of family sharing the gifts. By the way, 1 Corinthians 12, let's turn there briefly. I want to read a couple of things there. I'll summarize. You know, at the very beginning, Paul's discussing the gifts through verse 11. There's nine different gifts he lists, but he says there's only one spirit. So it's the same spirit, many gifts, and it's for the sake of building the body. Then in verse 12, he launches into the body. He says, even as the body is one, yet as many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of the same spirit. So there you have different ethnic backgrounds. You have different social backgrounds. But he says, at the Lord's table, we're all one body. So here's a passage we often view as about the gifts. But if you read on from where I just started in verse 12, he says more about the body than he does about the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. Because there's many gifts but one spirit, but that parallels many members, only one body. So the one spirit with many gifts are for the sake of the one body with many members. Look at verse 14 and following. In fact, you probably can't see it. I have the word body highlighted in yellow. You can't see my iPad probably outside like that. But it's verse 14 and following. Let's see here. Uh, starting in verse 12. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. 16 mentions of the word body in a small cluster of verses. He's repeating himself over and over and over again. Careful with that. Because his main point is about the body in this passage. And the spirit and the gifts are for the sake of building the body. Now look, look at um, verse 20. There are many members, one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. So here's where the table of the Lord represents the equal value. Actually, when Paul gets down to it, 
our value is not entirely equal at the table. Because he says, the members of the body, in verse 23, which we deem less honorable, which means the surrounding culture, the way naturally we would view some people as lower, he says, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. So he's more radical than what I said at the beginning. The table of the Lord does not raise up the less honorable to equal status. The table of the Lord raises up the less honorable to a greater status. Not to patronize them, but to say we're the body, which means those that don't have it naturally, a greater glory and a greater honor about them, we're here to give it to you. Oh man, I'm telling you, that's devastatingly powerful if you'll think about it. Because God's saying, I'm not just going to raise up the humble by myself. I'm going to plug them into a body. And the people who are greater in the body, who have more natural personal and social power, who might have more natural charisma, who may have been born into a greater family and have greater capability to make it in this world and to persuade people, I'm going to leave it to them to take the people who are more naturally low and lift them up and give them great status and honor around my table. Man, that's powerful right there. God says, you, you partner with me to build that kind of house. I'll be present always with you. That's the kind of fast I want. You go get those kind of people and you raise them up. See, it's easy for us to say how God's with the contrite and God raises them up. But he says, the way I've designed my body is that the people who are greater, they don't exalt themselves over the others. They pull the others in and they exalt them. Remember what we said in our very first recalibration message? That the very nature of Jesus is to use his royalty to lower himself and lift other people up. And that nature should be pervasive throughout the whole congregation. We use our greatness to make other people greater. And if we don't, no one will. Because God has committed himself to work through his body. Man, that's good. That's why the table of the Lord, it, the, the metaphor mixes, it becomes like a, a plant in the middle, starts to grow out by itself. Because if we're exercising this among ourselves, we're going to find this table like something from Narnia. It starts to take on its own life and to reach out to the world around us. And again, in Luke's Gospel and the other Gospels, Jesus is eating with the Gentiles. And, or with the, he refers to them covenantally as Gentiles, but he eats with the sinners. He eats with the tax gatherers. He has fellowship with people around the table that includes prostitutes. Oh, if this man knew the kind of person who was washing his feet with her tears, and Jesus was like, yeah. In my kingdom, she's great because she loves much. She's been forgiven much. For, you know, Simon, the, the, the Pharisee, immediately went into the normal, natural mode. But for Jesus, it's like, this is why I'm here. So the table represents the value of every member. One other verse about that. You don't have to turn there, but later reference. Paul prays that our eyes would be open to see this. In Ephesians 1.18. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you might know what is the hope of his calling. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? 
So Paul prays that our eyes would be open to see the way he values the saints around his table. He sees us totally different than we see one another when we see each other after the flesh. He sees mighty kings and queens. Sometimes the most tired, socially bent over, impoverished people around the Lord's table look like the grandest oaks of righteousness from a heavenly perspective. And God says, why, why, do you not, why if you have my spirit, do you not see this? Why do you build your churches based on your statuses instead of heaven's statuses? Why do you do that? Why don't you seek one another out in honor? The, the table of the Lord is our opportunity to give honor to one another, to lift one another up, to lower ourselves. It's, it's powerful. And finally, the table of the Lord represents the heart of the community. So again, when we visualize it, it's something literal that we'll eat at at the same time. But it's also symbolic. Again, the metaphor is mixed. It's not just a physical table. Let it have some kind of Narnia transformation. It's also the heart of the community. It's the heartbeat. Um, It's the cross and the spirit which is the heart of the community. Really, it's to crucify Jesus. And the presence of the Spirit is really the table of the Lord. So, mix that metaphor. Make the table the center. But the table is, is our Jesus mingled with the Holy Ghost as the centerpiece and heart pumping blood into the rest of the community. That means we should literally practice the Lord's Supper as much as is reasonable for our house churches. It may mean once a month. It may mean every day except for Friday. I mean, whatever you guys deem uh, that is reasonable, it should be a healthy, consistent practice. Okay, it's pushed beyond the once-a-year Passover, but it isn't given a schedule. But it is given as something because of the rich symbolism of it that should happen with some kind of... uh, habitual kind of customary frequency as often as you do this. You know, they committed themselves steadfastly to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And I am working still on our booklet about house churches that talks about this and gives practical suggestions. Um, So I hope to get you more information about this in the near future. But uh, in the meantime, let's do it as much as reasonably uh, possible. You never know what princesses are just going to emerge from the forest here. Here she comes. <laughs> Careful on those stairs. They are kind of steep, but you're welcome to use them. Uh, number two, let's prophesy. Oh, number one was let's practice the Lord's Supper as much as reasonably possible. This is underneath. Okay, I, I, didn't, I guess I didn't start making a list clearly enough. Okay, the table represents the heart of the community. So we have our Narnian transformation. It's a heart. Jesus and the Spirit. Boom, 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 boom. Well, that means the centerpiece is Jesus. So we come to his banquet, literally, number one. Number two, we should make the Spirit the centerpiece of our community. We're not just about hanging out, sipping coffee, and being in fellowship. We're about the Holy Ghost. The house, okay, the whole thing we're talking about with this, te- this, this table is the temple of the Lord. 
And God abides in His temple. So we should not just be marked by family, we should be marked by the fact that the Spirit of God is a fiery presence in our midst at all times. We're prayerful. We're focused in worship and praise. We, we share the gifts. God's presence is like the thing when we get together. And I'm going to launch onto this as point two next week. Or if we do, do the other talk, I'll do it the week after. But this is going to get exclusive emphasis in part two to this or part three of this message. So the presence of the Lord is crucial. But I'm putting it here on the family gathering because we should be about uh, still the Lord's presence being central. Which means specifically prophecy according to Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 14. But we're going to talk more about the gifts later. Number three. The table of the Lord as the heart means we should put forth sacrificial effort to build relationships among the body of the Messiah. We're, we're, no church should fall into the trap that now most have one way or the other and become one store in a giant mall that tries to a, a draw customers. That has, nothing, that has nothing to do with God's intention. God's intention puts responsibility on every single member to build covenant relationships. I know that's devastating to what's convenient for us, but it's still true. Okay, we shouldn't be building something that draws people in superficially. We should be building the kinds of relationships that will generate the kind of power and magnetism that we'll hardly be able to keep up with. So the, the heart of the community being the table, which is really Jesus and the Spirit, that means we are required to put forth sacrificial effort to build relationships. We're not just depending on the church staff to, to set everything else up for us and then we come in and volunteer when it's convenient. That is not God's intention. Amen and hallelujah and glory. Amen. Amen. It's really not. For those of you listening, and I hope that, that some do listen by recording, are you hearing me? It is not God's intention to just attend something that the hired clergy puts up. We like to complain about the clergy-laity distinctions, but the laity loves it just as much as the clergy do. Because it means the clergy just sets it up. You, make, you, you, you hire us to make it a professional setting, and we'll make it as convenient as possible for you. So that you don't have to worry about the normal family things. You come into our setting, and we'll set it up for you. And then you can volunteer according to the measure of your abilities. Family's not like that. Family you're stuck with. You have to put forth the effort and work it out or it doesn't work. So it takes, a, it takes a, a radical understanding of Scripture to transfer that family metaphor into the church. I'm telling you, it's revolutionary. We give it loops, lip service, but to practice it is revolutionary. But that is what the table of the Lord, as the heart of the community, requires of us. Amen. And that really is. It's, it's crazy. It's common. It's... Plain and simple in Scripture, but it's still revolutionary. Number four, out of five, I'm almost done with my message. Okay, Number four, the table of the Lord as the heart of the community requires for us to protect relationships. Alright, so number three, we're putting forth sacrificial effort to build. That's the positive. The negative, when I mean negative, I don't mean negative quality. I mean the, the direction of the action. We positively build. But on the negative end, that means we also defend against relational injuries. 
We have to view our relationships as entities in themselves. Okay, not some weird kind of like spirit that is the relationship, like some but something very, very deep and unusual happens when people are in holy friendships. It creates its own entity. That's that's well. What is it? Is it like some other spirit? No, it's the the body. It's the friendship itself. Like in a marriage, the two become one, and they can't do separately what they can do together. Both in terms of, I mean, the obvious. If you think about it, it's extraordinary. But the obvious thing is, the production of children and having family. You can't do that alone. So you've created something together that couldn't have happened alone. But in the spirit, it's even more powerful. Just the unity generates something that's so powerful. Uh, it can't happen alone. You know, one can put a thousand in flight, but two, ten thousand. So just the, the adding of one means that, you know, you, you get out of addition into multiplication. One can put a thousand, but two multiply that exponentially ten times. It's not like one can put a thousand and two ten two thousand to flight, right? It doesn't go one thousand to two thousand. It goes one thousand to ten thousand. It's like something about the unity generates that entity that makes our efforts exponentially more successful. So protect the relationship from injury. Don't deal with issues in an injurious way. The relationship is more important than the issue. Well, what about if they're in sin? Don't I have to correct? I, but that's, that is protecting the relationship. If there's real sin that has to be corrected, you don't defend the relationship from the correction. That's what helps guard the relationship. But you still do it in a way that's not offensive, that's not harsh. You're picking out a speck. You don't come out with a big hook to try to get a speck out of someone's eye. It is a very vulnerable, exposed tissue. You ca- I mean, you come in with care. You don't want to touch anything except the speck. You want to minimize contact to the speck as much as possible. So you're still, you're dealing with the issue, but you're doing it in a non-injurious way. The table demands that we protect relationships. The relationships are entities in themselves that should be protected. We can't just fly off the handle. We can't just scoot in and do whatever our emotions tell us to do. And we're going to deal with this and add little punishments to the people to, you know, to go beyond what needs to be done or to, to vent our frustrations. So often we get upset. I'm not saying we get upset often, but so often when we get upset, we feel our offense as the energy of justice. In other words, we think just because we're offended, we're right. And so we act out of that energy rather than out of the love of the Holy Spirit. Let the Spirit be the energy of your emotions. If you feel offended by something, you're upset. Do what you can to get under the influence of the Holy Spirit and see where He's coming from in this. Jesus says 99% of the time, okay, He didn't say that, it's my paraphrase, but I'm paraphrasing Matthew 7. Most of the time it's, you're the problem anyway. Really, I mean, He says it. He doesn't even say... When this happens, you're acting hypocritically. No, he just says it automatically up front. You hypocrite. <laughs> he just says it. When you, you see a speck in your brother's eye, why didn't you remove the log in your own? Hypocrite. 
First, remove the log. Then you can see clearly to remove the speck. And then, by the way, removing the speck takes a lot of gentleness. He's just assuming you're the one with the issue because most of the time, that's why we get upset with someone else. Because their speck is magnified by our log. And if you've got a big giant log sticking out of your eye, when you turn to someone to help them, you know, you're not only going to knock them over, but you're going to knock all 15 people over who are in the way as your big giant log is turning to the person you're offended with. I'm telling you, it infects the whole community. Paul says, don't let the sun go down in your wrath. Don't give a place to the devil. He's like, when y'all get in arguments, it has cosmic significance. It's not like at the, the bar down the street. Your arguments have cosmic effects. You're injuring the entity that is the body. So the table at the center as the heart means protect the relationships you're building. Don't injure them. Everything is an opportunity to protect and build. Protect and build. Man, you can't stop. A community like that, they will not tolerate sin, but it will still all be about love. The one great missing ingredient that is so powerful. And then finally... The table that represents the heart of the community means that the table becomes a launching pad for outreach into a lost world. Simultaneously, a magnet of outreach to a lost world. There's all kinds of things you can do with the literal and metaphorical use of the table to reach others. And there's a place for any kind of outreach the Spirit inspires and directs us to do. There's something about a team working together to reach the lost and serving their city and using it as an, uh, an open door for the gospel that has a great effectiveness. May the Lord give us fresh anointing and wisdom and power to set the table of the Lord as the centerpiece of our community, both for the sake of our body and the world around us. So the next time we get together, I'm taking this into the presence of the Lord. Or the next time we have a teaching, if we don't interrupt it with the other talk. But over the next two weeks, it'll be one of the two. I'll try to communicate with you in the meantime about that. Yeah. Amen. Yes, ma'am. A question. If you, if when you were saying that thing about um, the the two covenants and all that at the beginning. Two covenants? Where people were eating at the table of the idols. Oh, okay. Meat sacrifice. I don't that it was like a dual, trying to have a dual covenant. Right. Okay, so how does that um, apply? Like, how would we need to guard ourselves? In what way would we need to guard ourselves from doing that in our culture? And also, how does that correlate or work together with having sinners eating with you because that is something that Jesus did so I know it's not just that like what are what would be the thing that would be like we have to guard ourselves from doing yeah that's a good question well let me start by saying first of all I was bringing out that Corinthian problem for the positive application to us I wasn't worried about us partaking at idol temples What Paul was saying was, you're claiming theological immunity. But the fact is, because what's going on, I'm reading between the lines, you love the world and your engagement with the world is because you love the world, not because you're being missionary. 
So that's the difference. Right. So there it's the intention. Right. Okay. So there would be things maybe that we're doing, partaking of the world, like Jesus said, don't use the world fully. You know, sometimes yeah, Paul. we are doing yeah. that. First Corinthians 7, but, right. You know, so I guess we just have to ask ourselves, like, are, are there places in our lives where we're just, loving the world in the wrong way. Right. Yeah, it's, it it's really is that simple. I mean, and we should be just as eager to have fellowship with sinners for the right reasons as carnal Christians might for the wrong reasons. They want to go party. Th- these, there were some of the Corinthians that were full-on interested in the bad things going on at these banquets. Okay, we're holy people. we got nothing to do with that. We're innocent children. We wouldn't go anywhere near that. But we are that eager to reach out and have open doors and connections with sinners for the sake of the Lord. It's all about the motivation and the fire burning within. I mean, Jesus was, you know, one of our examples, Matthew invited him to a banquet. But I mean, the Holy Ghost was working to begin with. He had called Matthew. So Matthew's like, well, Master Rabbi, come to my house. And he invited all these prostitutes and cat tax collectors. And Jesus is like, all the better. But he's Jesus advancing the kingdom. So he's like, awesome fellowship with sinners. As opposed to someone wanting to go fulfill lust. And get drunk. Or have a few drinks. And show how free you are that you can use profanity. It's, it can be a, a similar activity in a totally different spirit. That's the key. Where's our heart at? That's why I'm saying, you know, the contrast was more to make my point rather than what, what our problem is, uh, because it's a problem we don't have. But still, the fact that Paul could use that language shows us how powerful the covenanting is. But here's the other thing. If we are having table fellowship with sinners in a missional uh, context or for that reason, even then, it's not, it's not like covenantal participation into something evil. It's rather giving them an opportunity into what we have. We're the ones in control. And I don't mean micromanagement control. I mean authority. I'm coming in holiness. I'm not interested in your lusts. I'm not interested in wine-bibbing. That's not what I'm here for. I don't care about that. I don't do that. I'm an innocent child. But man, I'm, an, I'm letting you engage me at my table, even if I'm at your house. Yeah, it's exactly. And Jesus was not at his own table in Luke 24. He was invited in as a guest. But when he got there, he became the host. So that's the difference. Even when you're invited, you can become the host by the grace of God. Because you're not there. See, you're not there to participate in the revelry. You're there to connect with people for the gospel. So there can be genuine friendship, but you've got to stay in control. And, and, and heaven help us. If we use that truth to go engage in, in lust and just be friends with the world which is enmity toward the Lord that's the difference the difference is are we the Jesus people or not thank you for that distinction and sometimes it means we don't have to go to these idol temples to meet with sinners homes is a good safe place you know, here and there the Lord might you know, send people in to these ugly situations, but you got to really be sent by the Lord and have that holiness, immunity, and that Jesus mission rather than just using these precious truths as an excuse to go party because you really love the world more than you love the Lord. Lots of Christians do that now. Totally exposed in shame on Facebook 
and other avenues of social media where they're using the Lord to be... uh, uh, I don't want to be too harsh in my illustration. To be a, a way to excuse their worldly behavior. It's shameful. So we're not that. But on the Jesus side, we're sent apostolically into the world. 